and welcome to another edition of Puck Talk here at 91.5 WGRE, your sound alternative. Unfortunately, the show is not going to start until 10.30, where I will have Michael Gallagher on the show, and we're going to talk all things Preds, NHL, trade deadline, and just like last week with Chris Martell, I'm going to throw him a curveball. But for now, enjoy the Black Keys here on 91.5 WGRE. Welcome back to Puck Talk here on 91.5 WGRE. Joining me right now is Michael Gallagher, who's a sports reporter for the Nashville Post, Nashville Scene, who covers the Tennessee Titans, Nashville Predators, Nashville Soccer Club, Vanderbilt, etc. Michael, how are you doing this morning? Doing good. Doing good, doing good. That's... um it's real good to hear. And, Michael, let's just get right into it with the trade deadline and all that talk. So, who won the trade deadline in, in terms of addition or subtraction? I've got a lot of big names written down in my paper here, but who won the trade deadline this year? I mean, I didn't really particularly like any of the trades that kind of happened, but I guess if you are if you have to pick a winner, I would say either the Capitals going out and getting Brendan Dillon or maybe the Carolina Hurricanes. They, they gave up a lot, but they brought back, you know, Brady Shea um, and a couple other pieces. So I think if you're looking for a winner, probably one of those two. Yeah, and uh, Carolina also picked up Vincent Trocek and Sammy Votnin, so they added a little bit of offense and a little bit of defense, a lot of playoff experience particularly. And one trade that kind of surprised me a little bit was Robin Leonard going to Vegas to back up Marc-Andre Fleury and the Golden Knights, who are an 8-1 and tear right now. Is that a good trade for the Golden Knights looking forward? I feel like it is. I mean, it cost them Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Subban in a, in a second-round pick. But Leonard has been a pretty steady goaltender for the Blackhawks. He was, you know, seeing him in two games here against the Predators, he was insane. I think he had like 70 saves on 73 shots or something crazy like that. Um, and he's, I feel like he's, he's a good veteran presence, you know, behind Mark Andre Fleury, who is, who is a little up there in age, um, you know, maybe some injury concerns going forward. So I think he's, he's probably a, a good solid backup. Uh, Malcolm Subban can potentially be a good goalie in the league. He's still really young and, I think for what the Golden Knights want to do this year, uh, they would feel more comfortable, you know, if they make the playoffs, having a turn to, to Leonard instead of Subban in case something happens to, to Flurry. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, looking at teams that sold a lot, we I, I want to look at the Devils for a little bit because they gave up Blake Coleman, Sammy Votnin. You know, this is a team that was sort of a – it felt like a scrappy – kind of a vibe at the beginning of the year, maybe like a Sandlot kind of a thing, Bad News Bears, and it just did not work out. That experiment did not work out, and, you know, P.K. Subban is going to stay in New Jersey, and they virtually got nothing in return except for a couple prospects and a couple picks. So looking forward, can the New Jersey Devils expect a, a fast rebuild over the next couple of years, or is this going to be a slow, grinding kind of a thing? Yeah, I think it's more of a process than, than anything else. I don't I don't think anyone in the Devils organization organization expects, you know, a quick turnaround. They're probably thinking long term, so they're probably banking on at least minimum best case scenario three years out being competitive, probably looking at four or five. The good news is they do have Jack Hughes, they do have Nico Heischer, 
you know, these are 18, 19, 20-year-old guys that, they, that they've gotten to the top of the draft the last couple of years. So they do have some talent to, to build around. I was a little disappointed in the return they did get for Sammy Votnin. Uh Yanni, I don't know how you say last name, Kukinen, um, Frederick Clayson, and a, a fourth-round pick. I, I feel like they could have gotten a little bit more out of out of that just because Votnin is still 28. Um most of half of his points, you know, have come on the power play. He's a puck moving defenseman. He's he's really good on the power play. That I feel like there should have been more value for for a player like that on the on the market. But um, you know, they brought back a couple a couple players, a couple draft picks. You know, talking about PK Subban, they didn't really get a lot in exchange for him either. It was, you know, a couple picks for that as well. So I mean, they they sold off a couple pieces. So. It's kind of confusing looking at what the Devils are doing. You would you would expect them to, to be building more, and P.K. Stewart's not getting any younger. If they're trying to build around him, I mean, trying to he's on the wrong side of 30. It's kind of confusing trying to figure out what the Devils are trying to do, but maybe they have a plan, maybe they don't. Yeah, and, you know, we can never really get inside the minds of uh, GMs in the NHL, but, um, you know, one big name that was moved out of Ottawa was John Gabriel Peugeot. He's finally on a team that's competitive right now, a team, a New York Islanders team that currently sits um, out of a play uh, in the wild card spot as the number one seed. They're four, five, and one in their last ten. Is that a good pickup for a long term, or is John Gabriel Peugeot more of a rental this year? I'm pretty sure I thought the Islanders were. Either they either re-sign him or were working to re-sign him. I haven't really paid too much attention. I've had a lot going on here with some of the other stuff I'm covering, but I feel like I feel like they think it's a long-term move for them. Um, I kind of question it a little bit. I mean, everyone's talking about how the Islanders need to go out and get a proven scorer. I really don't think that Peugeot is that. He he has 24 goals this year, but this is the first season seven years into his career, but where he had 20, where he scored at least 20 goals. So it's it's kind of one of those one of those players you look at where. You kind of see the potential. I think he's still young, like 27, 28. Um, he could potentially be a consistent 20-goal scorer, but I I don't really see it. So that was another move that kind of question I questioned. And they gave up a lot for him as well. So, I mean, if you're giving up a first-round pick, a, a conditional second-round pick, and a conditional third-round pick for him, I mean, you, you have to be pretty well sold on the fact that this guy's going to come in and be a 25 to 30-goal scorer consistently for you. Yeah, and this is coming from a team that's offense hasn't really been a focal point this year. I mean, Matthew Barzell, of course, has um, been their main guy, but unfortunately for the Islanders, it's a Barry Trotz team, which means it's built around defense, and you know, Pajot, I feel like, needs some good wingers to uh, help him succeed a little bit, and I'm not sure his offense is going to skyrocket the way that the Islanders are hoping, or at least sustain at 20 goals, like you said. Uh, one move that surprised me a little bit was Nick Ritchie going to Boston, because Boston is the top team in the league, 90 points right now, still holding over a very hot Tampa Bay Lightning team. What does Nick Ritchie add to the Boston Bruins right now? I mean, I, I think it's it's more or less you're just looking for, for some set of, sort of grit, some sort of toughness. I mean, that's kind of the Anaheim Ducks MO. They, they're they the they're the type of team that, you know, get under your skin. They beat you up. They kind of, you know, just really irritate you. So they're good at, at collecting players that are good at that. And, I mean, you look like you said Boston's the top team, um, one of the top teams in the league, and it's, it's kind of hard trying to figure out what they what they need that would set them over the edge because they're always consistently in the playoffs. 
but they, they haven't, you know, had a lot of su- success getting to the Stanley Cup final. So I think this is probably just a pure move on, you know, a little bit of grit. Get someone that's going to go out there and just get under your skin and just make life difficult for you in the playoffs. Yeah, and there's no doubt that Boston will be the top team going into this year's playoffs. So, you know, maybe they need a little bit of more grit, maybe a little bit more physicality so that when, you know, Game 7 comes up against the St. Louis Blues, they're not getting outplayed. <laughs> um, and then a move that kind of surprised me was Patrick Marlowe and Connor Sheary to Pittsburgh, specifically Patrick Marlowe, because Patrick Marlowe is not who he used to be. Uh, in terms of offense and defense, so to speak, I feel like he's more of an eight-minute, you know, ice time, fourth-line guy. Is that in what they traded for Patrick Marlowe? The uh, the Sharks didn't get a whole lot in return, but is that more of a veteran we need a veteran presence in the locker room kind of a move, or is this like a favor from San Jose to Patrick Marlowe, like, hey, go get one more cup before you officially retire? I mean, I think it could be a little bit of both. I feel like Patrick Marlowe is just one of those guys that's just been around forever, and you hear his name, and he used to be you know, one of the top players in the league. So you hear that, you know, Pittsburgh traded for Patrick Marlowe. So on the surface, it sounds like a really good move, like a big trade for the Penguins. But then you got to remember how old he is. His skills are declining. He's not the player he used to be. Um, but that, given you know everything he's done in the league, I feel like he would be someone in the locker room. You know, one of those that veteran presence that you kind of need. You know, with a lot of the young guys Pittsburgh has, he could be someone that could you know kind of help calm some of their nerves. Uh, you know, give some great advice and be a little bit of a mentor. You know, just making an extended playoff run. And I think I, I read or heard somewhere that. The Sharks even told Marlo, like, hey, we're trading you, but at the end of the year, like, feel free to come back next year if you if you want to continue playing. So they, they got a third-round pick out of it. It was it was an okay deal for the Sharks. I feel like they maybe probably could have squeezed a little bit more out of Pittsburgh, but they get a third-round pick, and there's entirely a chance Patrick Marlowe might go back to them next year. So, Yeah, once again, this is Michael Gallagher for the Nashville Post. And looking, and I'm sort of bouncing around because uh, it, some of these moves are just surprising nonetheless. Like, Dylan DeMello going to Winnipeg. And Winnipeg is statistically the worst team in the league in terms of shot attempts, um, high danger chances, and shot attempts allowed. You know, what does Dylan DeMello add to a very, very, very bad Winnipeg defense? I mean, I'm not really high on Dylan DeMello. I don't, I don't, this was another one of those trades I didn't really understand. They gave up a third round pick for him. And, and you look at the way Winnipeg plays, they're, they're kind of, you know, covering the Predators here. I've seen them extensively. They're kind of like a, looking at them like, like the bully on the playground type team. Um, I'm not really sure how Dylan DeMello kind of fits in with that identity. Um, but you look at Winnipeg, obviously the whole Dustin Bufflin thing, and it's come out that he's not going to play hockey this year. So there was talk of him maybe working things out with Winnipeg and coming back. So maybe they, they're bringing him over to try and just be a body to fill what they thought Dustin Buffett might have been. Um, but yeah, this was another one of those moves that just kind of, I think it was, I think it was a team overreacting to the market and kind of making a move for the sake of making a move. Yeah. And, you know, looking uh, at one more team before we have to take a little, uh, like a 15 second break, but one move that particularly surprised me was Wayne Simmons going to the Buffalo Sabres because Wayne Simmons has been passed around the league ever since he was traded to Nashville out of Philadelphia. Then he went to New Jersey, and now he's in Buffalo. 
And that did not, on the surface, that's a quote-unquote good move, but I don't see what Wayne Simmons adds to the Buffalo offense. I don't really see how he fits in with the system. I'm not really sure why that move was made. So just gut reaction to Wayne Simmons going to Buffalo. Yeah, that was that was another one of the, the trades that I didn't really like and didn't make sense to me. I mean, if you're if you're Buffalo, you know, you give up a fifth round pick and you bring back someone who has been a twenty goal scorer, somebody who, you know, has been kind of, you know, I don't want to I hate using the term enforcer, but you know, he'll 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 drop the gloves if he needs to. A lot of he Wayne Simmons has a reputation of being a guy you don't want to mess with because he can score on you and he can hurt you like with his hand. So Maybe that's what they were going for. I think the Buffalo Sabres were one of the teams that were one of the biggest losers of the trade deadline. They they needed offense. They needed to bring back a top six forward. They had a slew of defensemen they could have traded to make that happen. They didn't really do that. And If you need offense and Wayne Simmons is your answer, then that kind of just tells you everything you need to know about the Buffalo Sabres. Fair enough. And, Michael, we're going to take a real quick break here. You're listening to 91.5 WGRE, your sound alternative. I'm Candy Crowley from CNN. You're listening to WGRE 91.5, your sound alternative. And just like that, we are back here on 91.5 WGRE, your sound alternative. Now, Michael, we've been talking a lot about the trade deadline, winners and losers specifically. We've gone over pretty much every team in the Eastern Conference, but one team that either really should have gone in to buy or really gone in to sell was the Nashville Predators, and they did neither. They traded Matt Irwin out, they traded Mika Salamaki out, and they brought pretty much the Anaheim and Toronto equivalent of Matt Irwin and Mika Salamaki back to Nashville. Just a lot of, I wouldn't even call them lateral moves, just a lot of confusing, head-scratching moves from David Poyle, maybe not a lot, but two specifically, and they could have gotten a lot in return for players like Mikael Glenland and Craig Smith. So is there... And David Poyle said that the reason he didn't do it is that he the play that the Predators have been going with recently was encouraging enough not to sell or buy. I'm sure you have an opinion on this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I... It, it, it's somewhat baffling given, given David Poyle's reputation and knowing that he's the guy's 70 and he's got friends that have been GM, GMs for you know half the time he has and that they have cups and he doesn't. And uh, the window on this Predators team is running out. Three, two or three years ago, everyone said, oh, they have a good five to six year window. Well, we're halfway through that and they have been, they got bounced by the Stars in the first round last year. They got bounced by Winnipeg in the second round before that. Colorado has drastically improved. The Blues, your division rival, have won the Cup last year. It seems like everyone else in the division is getting better and Nashville's not. And you look at the trade deadline, the Blues are the top team in the Central. I mean, granted, you swept them in back-to-back twice this season, but they went out and they go and get Marco Scandella. They bolster their blue line. And you could argue that Nashville... Primarily, they've been built on defensive goaltending, and that's the weakness of this team this year. So it's, it's puzzling to me that they trade Matt Irwin and a six-round pick to go out and get Corbinian Holzer, who, statistically speaking, is a far, product, far less productive player. And 
at least with Irwin, you know what you're getting, and Irwin's been here. He knows the system. Holzer's coming over. You're plugging him in. He's having to learn a new system on the fly, all while trying to make the playoffs. It's kind of it's just very confusing. You look at the Salamaki for for Ben Harper trade. That was basically an AHL trade. I think that was I think that was Poyle trying to to bolster Milwaukee's defense, given that Jared Tenori's probably going to be up with Nashville for the rest of the season. Um, so it's just kind of confusing. I mean, granted, the Predators have been playing better. They they seem to have improved slightly under John Hine. And if they do squeak into the playoffs, like that's entirely possible. But they're they're not going to make it past the first round. I just don't see that happening. And when you when you see the return for Sammy Votnin, who would have fit in perfectly on the on the Predators' third pairing, he's someone you could have put up on the second pairing with Matias Ekholm, slid Dante Fabro down with Dan Hamus, who who's played with pre, pretty well when he's played with him. Um, I just feel like looking at some of of that, they I, bringing back a defenseman, not bringing back a better defenseman, I'll say than Holzer, I think was a miss, and then. You have expiring contracts for Granlin and Craig Smith. You saw what what Peugeot got back. You easily could have got back probably a first-round pick for one or both of those guys, probably a couple other picks, and maybe a prospect or two. So it's just kind of confusing. But I will say the fact that they didn't trade Granlin and he is on an expiring contract and how well he's played under John Hines, I kind of feel like that's, that's signaling that there's potential for Granlin to be re-signed with Nashville next year which would not be a bad thing at all. And frankly, um, with the way that Mikhail Glenlin has played and given the way that Craig Smith has played, it's like they're trying to keep both of them, but I'm not sure what piece you would move out to keep both of those players other than Nick Benino and and obviously Kyle Turris. But um, with... The playoffs approaching and with Nashville playing, I believe, five back-to-backs and the way that they've been playing recently is... I asked Chris Martell this, I'll ask you this. Are the Nashville Predators going to make the playoffs? I personally don't think they will. I just... I've seen too much. The only consistent thing about this team is their inconsistency. So, while they are playing better and they have won five out of the last seven, and they did get their first three-game win streak since October, I'm still not a big believer in this team. There's there's something wrong. There's a, There's got to be a reason why Ryan Johansson, Victor Arvidsson, Matt Duchesne, Philip Forsberg are all having down years. It's okay for one of your top players to have a down year, but the fact that four of them are having a down year at the same time, something, something just doesn't set right with that. So I just... I just Bramlin, Smith, Turris, Benino, you know, Berman Yoshi's carried this team all year, trying to get into the playoffs with that, and then once you're in there trying to win with that kind of formula, I just don't think I'm I'm kind of fifty fifty. They I could see them squeaking in, but right now my gut just says they're they're not a playoff team. You look at the, the wild card standings, you know, they're they're ahead of Winnipeg and Arizona and Minnesota is still kind of right there in the mix, and Calgary is right ahead of them. I just feel like they're they're going to have to fight off too many teams, and I could I could just see it coming down to the final game of the season, them needing a win to get into the playoffs, and then them collapsing under pressure because that's just what their mo has been this season. Yeah, and you know you're not wrong, but guys like Rocco Grimaldi and Ryan Ellis and Roman Yossi, those guys have been huge pieces to the Predators' success. And Rocco Grimaldi was just rewarded with a $4 million contract, which is not bad for Rocco Grimaldi, especially given that he was signed on a whim 
uh, two years ago, and then he gets an a prove it contract this year, and then he gets the okay, you've proven it contract uh, just now. So Rocco Grimaldi is going to be a big piece going forward. He has thirty points in fifty nine games. Is that something that we can come to expect for years to come, or is this just kind of a fluke year for uh, number twenty three? Well, I think it's more conducive to what Grimaldi can give you and what he, when given the the proper chance, what he can do. He's a productive player. You look at him and you watch him play, obviously the speed and the size, he kind of reminds you of like a, a mini Victor Arvidsson. And that's funny saying in itself because Victor Arvidsson is like, you know, a mini player himself. Because <laughs> Rocco Grimaldi is, I feel like, his production this year, he's finally given, I feel like he's what the Predators were hoping they had with Gabrielle Bork and Taylor Beck and Matt Halachuk. You know, he's like the ideal third, fourth line guy, you know, and he's he's I, on our podcast yesterday, I called him, you know, the ultimate Swiss Army knife. Like, he can play on the <laughs> he, He's really good at playing with, with players like Ryan Johansson and, and other top line players, but he's more suited for a third or fourth line. So, he's someone with the speed and with the talent that can play up and down the lineup, play on all four lines. And I think John Hines is using him exactly how he should. He's giving him a lot more chances. I'd like to see him get a little bit more time on the power play because I think he's creative and his speed presents mismatch problems. But I think this is, I think this is more of the norm for Rocco Gravaldi, 10 goals, 30 points. Um, I think he could, he could even probably pick it up a notch. I wouldn't be surprised if he was consistently a 40 to 45 point player, you know, over the course of his career. Yeah, without a doubt. And, um, Going off your point, Rocco Grimaldi has seen a lot more power play time, and I noticed one point during the Nashville-Edmonton game back when we were both working the SEC tournament that in the final minute, the lot when uh, UC Saros had been pulled, the final line included Kyle Turris, Rocco Grimaldi, Mikael Glenland, and I believe um, Philip Forsberg, and I just kind of thought to myself, in no way shape or form would Peter Laviolette have ever put out Kyle Turris, Rocco Grimaldi, and Mikel Glenland in that situation. So I think that uh, guys like that are finally, guys like Grimaldi and Turris and Glenland are starting to be put in positions where they can succeed, and guys like Ryan Johansson are finally being put in the doghouse. Well, maybe not finally, but they're being put in the doghouse. And one more player I wanted to highlight well, two more players, Dante Fabro and Colin Blackwell, two young guys in the Predators system. Fabro has 11 points in 57 games, and Blackwell has eight points in 24 games. I personally love the way that Blackwell has played this year. Dante Fabro has been a little bit shaky. What is your opinion on those two young guys? Yeah, I feel like Dante Fabro is kind of, He's still. Sometimes it's hard to keep in mind that that he's still just 21. Um, he's in his uh, his first full season. He had four games last year. He played really well with Dan Hamus um, in the final four games and then in the playoffs. But he's coming in, and, and sometimes you have to keep in mind as well. In addition to being just 21, he's essentially taking over the role of PK Subban from last year. He's paired with Matthias Ekholm. And at times, they were the Predators' top defensive pairing. This year, it was clearly Ryan Ellis and Roman Yossi. But 57 games, he's got 11 points. He's only a minus four. You know, that could be a lot worse. Fabro has had some moments where you watch and you're like, oh, man, this guy's a rookie. Or, oh, that was a bad turnover. But then he had some really good games. But sometimes he looks like he could be the Predators' second or third best defenseman. Like, there's games where he really shines. 
and there's games where he kind of struggles and it's never consistent like he's never consistently good or consistently bad it's like oh man that was a great game and then the next game it's like oh man he looks like looks like a rookie so i think he's kind of developing nicely i kind of i kind of think his trajectory is a little bit similar to seth jones where his first year he had really good you know, oh man, that was a great game. Or oh, we see the we see the potential in him, and then it, you know it was kind of up and down, and then he he eventually found his footing and kind of smoothed out. And I think you'll see that with Fabro. Uh, Colin Blackwell is kind of just interesting. He's not really like a prospect, but he's also not really a veteran. He's only 26. You know, he's kind of bounced around a little bit. He's been in Nashville for two years, um, but the fact that he's got eight points, three of those are goals in 24 games. He's a plus 10 rating, which shows. He's actually contributing, making a difference out there on the ice. He may not be scoring goals, as many goals himself as he would like, but the fact that he's, he and himself has been on the ice for 10 goals is showing that he's also helping contribute to what his line mates are. So I think I was initially when they gave him you know, an extended look and they brought him up here, I was like, I feel like Yakov Trenin or you know, maybe Brent Pitlick or Daniel Carr, someone else could be better suited for that role. But Tom Blackwell's kind of proved me wrong. He's, he's playing fairly nicely. He seems like he's taking what John Hines is kind of coaching and, and picking it up, and, and he's having a, a solid season for him. Yeah, and uh, one more question before we run out of time, but uh, one guy who's underperformed this year who had very high expectations given the way that he played last year was Victor Arvidsson, and he has not really had the same speed. He hasn't had the same shot. He hasn't been able to get to the areas that he needs to get to in order to be successful. He's thrived off being a transitional uh, goal scorer. He's never really been a grinder in the offensive zone. So, given the way that Victor Arvidsson has played this year, where we're seeing glimpses of his former self, is he going to bounce back this year, or next year, or has Victor Arvidsson finally been exposed? I don't think he's been exposed. I think it's more of, it's kind of been a tale of two seasons. So the first half of the season, they they really changed the way he played in his style. Victor Arvison has primarily had his success parking himself in front of the net, standing there, waiting in, and just kind of screening the goal and getting the, the jump screens and then tipping in, you know, passes in the crease. Um, and if he's not doing that, then he's scoring most of his points off the rush because he's got that blazing speed where he can make it, he can take a breakaway and beat a lot of defenders. And those are, those are the two ways that he normally scores his goals this year. Peter Laviolette, for whatever reason, maybe it was because they broke up the Jopa line, they are trying something new. Victor Arvidsson wasn't going to the front of the net. He wasn't getting those chances off the rush like he normally has. You were seeing him come up, and he was playing he was playing the player more than the puck. And that's just not Victor Arvidsson's game. So, he's out of his comfort zone. He's trying something new. He's not really being able to be the best version of himself. He starts firing off shots from random areas on the ice. He just didn't look comfortable. And then when he's Finally started to figure it out a little bit. Robert Bortuzzo injures him. He's out. And I think since he's come back from injury, you know, Adam Bingen did a story on The Athletic where he interviewed Arvidsson and asked him about all this stuff, and he said, I don't have the speed that I normally do. Something's wrong, and I have to figure it out. That, to me, tells me that he's not fully recovered from that injury. So I think I think he's, he's starting to find it again. You know, he had a goal the other night. I'm not ready to say he's back. I don't think he's been exposed. I think he is a 30 to 35 goal scorer in this league, and that's who he will be. I think it's just been a weird year for him having to, to, you know, adjust from being on the Jofa line to Forsberg got taken away, and then he was playing with Johansson a lot, but he was, you know, Craig Smith was up there, then Granlin was up there, then Kyle Harris was up there, 
They had a lot of inconsistency on that line. Then he gets injured. So I don't. I just think right now he's not at fully at 100%. I think once he gets back to that, which that might not be until the end of the season, um, but I think that's kind of what he's battling through right now. Yeah, couldn't have said it better. Well, Michael, that uh, that's going to conclude our show, but uh, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, folks, you're listening to 91.5 WGRE. Once again, that was Michael Gallagher here on uh, Puck Talk, and we were thankful to have him. And up next, we're going to play some music here. I That will conclude my show. So, once again, this is 91.5 WGRE. You're